I want to thank you. I want to thank you for inviting me to to serve you in this way, to facilitate this. This has been an extraordinary experience for me. And I really hope, as we talked about in a past episode, that people will be willing to go back and listen from the beginning. Because I understand there's many hours here, but if you really enjoy Josh and his show and you really want to understand the complexities of a human being, this is a wonderful place for you to do it. And I challenge you to have the curiosity and the courage to do that with yourself because when you do, you'll be surprised at not only the bias that you've carried, but how much of that bias you can let away and how much more you can be in love with yourself, not in an egoic way, but in a truthful, soulful way. And you have a deeper relationship with others and with your planet and with your environment. Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. Dove and I started this episode by talking about experiencing fun almost for the first time for me, or at least to that level. This podcast, I don't think people think of as being the most fun podcast ever, and I'm not the most fun person ever, but I'm a lot more than I used to be. I don't know if that's saying a lot or a little. And Dove handled context in this conversation that kept me, this is what kept me from recording all these things before, despite knowing that I wanted to. And by context, I mean legality, framing, how we look at things, and things that if you don't cover them, then it's just me talking about drugs, not about life, not about learning and growth. I highly recommend working, you know, I don't know where you are in life, but working with someone like Dove for unearthing vulnerabilities like this. After talking about the experiences I had, I shared a few stories showing how I integrated those things, the social skills that those experiences that they help prompt me learning and developing, also leadership work, things like getting past doormen to make great times for everybody, swimming across the Hudson River. These all are outgrowths of these things that I really didn't, I couldn't share where they came from before. So Dove helped describe how it all came together after that, that it wasn't just these random experiences that I had and they were fun or whatever, but they became a part of who I am, my practice with leadership, with teaching, with the, my environmental and sustainability and stewardship work. But the main point of this episode, the third one, why I had to do it after the first two, was sharing my experiences of powerlessness as a man compared to the power that women get and a woman who scares me, and also a few men who experienced similar situations that suggest to me that my situation isn't particularly rare. And note that I don't describe problems with women per se, but with a system that says, believe women, hashtag, without accountability. So you'll hear what the experiences were that scared me. My leadership work has been leading me to become famous, but I've been afraid to get past a certain level of fame. And I guess fame, I'm not sure if that's the right word, of notoriety of, of influence, because I think billions of people want to change their behavior with regard to the environment. And I've been afraid to get past a certain level for fear of one of the stories that I tell in this episode. So you'll get to hear what that's all about. I had to share this to liberate myself from that fear. Again, I'm not afraid of the truth of what you'll hear in the story. I'm not afraid of what happened at all because I believe I behaved honorably, nor am I afraid of women but of a system that empowers people. And right now is the way it treats men. Well, it makes me afraid to be myself, but I'm doing it anyway. 
Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Dove Barron for episode number three of, well, Dove, you take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, episode three of the uh, deep inquiry into Dr. Joshua Spodak. And the, you know, as you know, the show is called Leadership in the Environment. And what we've been talking about in this uh, show, particularly now we're uh, episode three of here, was the environment that has created this man. One of the things that I talk about is that human beings are created by our environment. We are formed and shaped in that environment. The environment, of course, is our family. It is our belief systems. It is our socioeconomic environment. It is many, many things that impact us and shape and mold us. And we are, in many ways, robotic to that, that we just go into the world from that place until we reach a place where we begin to question. Now, not everybody gets there. Not everybody gets to question. Some people just go, yeah, this is my life. That's it. And others don't. Others stop. They travel along the journey. They travel along the path. And then they stop and they say, okay, why am I on this path? Why does this matter to me? And they change direction. Sometimes in a completely opposite direction, sometimes it's a small deviation. But each time we make those deviations, according to Hugh Everett the Third and multiple reality theory in quantum physics, every time that we make that deviation, we create an entire new universe for ourselves. So we're exploring the universes of Dr. Joshua Spodek and how he came to be formed in the way that he is. Now, as you know, if you've listened to the past episodes, we have gone into and looked at where he grew up and his childhood and the impact of that. And of course, you probably heard the episode he did with his mom, which was a fabulous episode that talked a lot about that forming. Then we talked about his move into academia and what he thought that was and how he thought that was a really a way to reach the higher echelons of status and realizing that that really wasn't what he was, that was more to it. And then we talked about his adventure into the world of being single and what that meant and stumbling upon his own awkwardness around that and feeling uncomfortable and then discovering how to go beyond that and even into the uh, world of pickup artists and, and researching there and finding out more about that. And that then sort of showing that that was an opening into understanding leadership and influence and impact and that made impact. And then on top of that, we then talked about and where we finished up in the last episode was the key that unlocks the mind or the key that can unlock the mind for those who choose to do so to help them get outside of the framework. And we talked about psychedelics and and the impact of using those kinds of substances to shift us, to move us, to give us another perspective. So we're now here back at this next episode and we want to sort of bring it all together and talk about this, what I think is a lunatic idea called work-life balance, which I don't believe exists because it says if you are working, you're not alive. And if you're alive, you're not working. And so Joshua and I were talking before we started to hit record about where we need to go to bring our lives into a balance that's not a work-life balance, but that is more joyous as an experience. So I want to welcome back the host of the show, Dr. <laughs> Joshua Spodek. And let's jump back in. And I have to add to the, you talked about the context of this and what we're doing. 
And the things that I've shared so far are things that I've shared with close people before and a little bit here and there on here. I cannot thank Dove enough for many, many things here. The first was that, oh, I should also mention, if you mentioned my mom's episode. I also want to mention the episode called Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, Part One, Rock and Roll, where I was inspired by Bruce Springsteen's Broadway show, which I recommend, which told me people, I really love hearing him. I mean, I love his music, but I want to know who he is. Yes. And people have been asking me that for a long time and I wasn't comfortable sharing it. So there's that inspiration. I hope people listen to that and watch that show. Some stuff I wanted to add about the drugs part. I didn't expect to get into that. I can't stop thanking Doug Dove yet because I was speaking to him a while ago about how that episode had, the Bruce Springsteen stuff had inspired me. And I knew that I wanted to do episodes with the information that I've sharing what I've shared, but I didn't know how. And I thought I would just sit down with a microphone and just start talking. And Dove said, I'll do it. You know, I'll host you on your, on your show. And as soon as he said it, I, it made me think of the 200th episode of a show that is a, another great inspiration for me inside the actor's studio where James Lipton could have had anyone he wanted. And he picked, I mean, he could have picked Pacino or De Niro or Streep and he picked Dave Chappelle. And I love that episode. Yes. And because you got to learn about James Lipton and, you know, you hear your stuff here and there. And I really like that. And as soon as Dove said, I was like, perfect. I've been trying to think of who would be the right person to ask to interview me and some, I was thinking for the 200th episode or 300th episode or something like that. And as soon as he said, I was like, Dove is perfect. I mean, other episodes to listen to are the episodes of him as a guest on mine. There are three so far. There'll be one that we record after this. And probably you are the one that I mentioned most because of what you, the authenticity and the genuineness that you took on your personal challenge, but also the whole approach you had to it, uninhibited, unfiltered, fun, but not fun, like uh, playful, like go to an amusement park fun, fun. Like the reason you did what you did was enjoying life more, yes. not less, even though you're giving up something that at one point was a major achievement or something that showed you had succeeded by your standards. You had arrived in the world. And I mean, all my guests inspire me, but there's levels of inspiration. Yours was really at, at, at the upper level of it. I'm honored. Um, and so now all of that could have happened and you could have done a crappy job of, of the conversation, <laughs> <laughs> but all that could have been crappy and the conversation was great. And so the, I, I really felt comfortable sharing so far what I've shared. And so what I would like to get into here, maybe even bigger there's some things that I said I was scared about sharing certain things, but I haven't shared what, after we hung up or after the technical issues last time, I'm going to share and uh, we'll see where they go. It might be a little different than what you talked about, about the integrating everything together. Yeah, um, but I, I want to say right here for everybody listening that I talked about this in earlier part, uh, in one of the earlier these episodes, and I talked about vulnerability. And it's this word that is thrown around now, you know, Brene Brown's done great research on it. I've been talking about it for 30 years, about the importance and value of vulnerability. And the problem is that we now have faux vulnerability. We have faux authenticity and faux vulnerability, faux as in F-A-U-X. It's a false version of it. It's what's safe to be vulnerable with so that I sound like I'm being really authentic. That's, I see that with politicians who, who give speeches and I watch their micro cues and their body language and I can see it's, it's freaking rehearsed. It's not actually vulnerable. And, and I want to salute you. I mean, let's not make this a blowing smoke a beach or this skirt thing, but I just want to start here by saying I want to salute you because 
I did not. So everybody needs to know. I did not say, here's the questions, Josh. And I'll ask you this. And you, you know, you can steady yourself for answering these questions or you can go. I don't back off. You know that. I mean, you know that from my other shows because I have two podcasts of my own. And I don't back off. I go where we need to go. And you have stepped into that. And that is leadership. Leadership is always, real leadership is always based in the vulnerability, the willingness to say, here's where I've struggled. Here's where I still struggle. Here's where I'm stepping up. You know, after our very first conversation which was not even an interview, you said, you know, I really should hire you because <laughs> you could see that, you know, I'm not going to back off. I'm going to go after what needs to be gone after. And you've done that here. And I want to acknowledge that and recognize that in you so that the people listening are thinking, you know, was this a bit of a setup? No, no setup. I just said to Josh, as he said, I'll interview on this. And you go, okay. And I said, yeah, we'll just go where we need to go and we'll discover what we need to discover. And we've taken a break of a few days in between because of my schedule to come back and do a third one. And in that time, I asked Joshua not to listen to the previous ones so there would be no filter. And he's come back and he's now willing to go deeper than we'd even imagined before. So I want to salute that and acknowledge that. Or even compelled to go deeper because of realizing where I've gotten. And I'm speaking with a comfort that I didn't expect. And there were times when you were asking me questions. I was like, where's he going with this? I like I, The stuff I want to get across... By the time you got to where I was, the meat of this stuff, I was, since I'd come at, you'd come at it from a more foundational earlier parts of my life. And so by the time I got there, I was more comfortable. And you also, I don't remember the questions you asked. I remember the support that you gave. That's what made, you would say stuff about your life or things that you'd observed about others. And that made it easier for me. I'm not sharing it in a vacuum. Had I just done it on my own, I don't know how I would have gotten to some of the things. Right. So my way of, you say blow smoke up skirts, but I think of blowing sunshine up asses. <laughs> okay, I'm good with that. <laughs> to the drugs, there was, you said that drugs, when used in a certain way, some people, I would never use a drug to fix a problem that could be fixed another way. I, I don't want to get into talking about people on prescriptions. I'm not talking about that. I couldn't have used ecstasy in the first place had I not had the anticipation that the more I would use it, the less I'd want to. Because I don't want to lose control. Right. Another thing is something that this evolved through the, it is that if I have a problem in my life that I can fix, fix the problem. Yeah. To cover it up with, to make myself feel better, but without fixing the problem, that makes things worse. So I would never think to do that. On the other hand, if I'm out with my friends, the music's amazing. The light's amazing. And it's like, and I can't, I'm having the best time of my life. And there's no way I can get better. But if I take a drug, it'll get, make it better. That actually seems to work for me. That that motivates making my life awesome. Mm-hmm. And that's when I would use it. Was to It was when I was with my best friends in the best situation. And it really led to just amazing improvements to my life. And one big thing that hit me the first time I took it, and the first couple of times I took it, was I grew up, and I, stop me if I said this before, because I, I, I've said this to some people. I, I associate this with my father, but as I've grown older, I realized that a lot of people have this. Maybe everybody has it. That Did I tell you about uh, the time when my dad came downstairs and said, we were going to see a movie? All right. So I'm there with my two sisters. And one day my dad comes downstairs. We're, I'm like 10 years old, uh, somewhere around that age. And he comes down and says, kids, tonight we're going to go see a movie. And we all like to see movies. So we're like, yay. Now I didn't say yay. I said, I don't really want to go. Mm-hmm. Now, why did I say I didn't want to go? Because I like to see movies. I said it because I'd picked up a pattern before and the pattern happened. 
which was later in that day, my dad said, all right, we got to do some chores. We got to do some vacuuming and mopping and whatever. And I said, I don't want to do that. And he says, then no movie for you, which is what I expected from past experiences. And I said, I wasn't going to go see the movie. <laughs> and he was like, oh, can't punish Josh with what he doesn't, can't take away, can't what, he take away what he doesn't want anyway. Now, of course, he drags me over and he's like, can't do it. And I was like, ah, oh, it's forced. That's what it's really about. That's a whole other lesson. What's relevant here is that something I learned from him, but I think I would have learned anyway. I, I got to pull off on ascribing this one to him. I learned that if you work hard, you get a reward. You shouldn't get a reward if you don't work hard. Mm-hmm. Well, this led me, led me to make a lot of choices in my life that I would not have made because I thought I, I have in my head a balance between work and reward. You said in the previous interviews that you know, you'd had this entire sort of fixation on the harder you worked, yeah. the, the more likely you were to get the reward that you were looking for. But that, that, that actually didn't match when you realize that, yes, you were getting the reward, you might get the status, you might get those things, but it wasn't always the feeling that you were looking for. It wasn't always the depth that you were looking for. So in terms of professional scholarly areas, I went physics professor. And it had the highest status. Yeah. And it didn't give me the reward that I wanted. Did I mention how that affected the drug experience? Keep going. So, well, I take this pill. Next thing you know, I'm having the best time of my life. No work. I gave someone 20 bucks. And then that feeling, I, I remember walking around the club feeling to myself, this is why I worked so hard. This is why I worked so hard. But then later I realized I didn't have to, the work, you can have fun. That's it. You can have fun. You can just enjoy life. And I never did that before. And that opened up this whole world of fun and yeah, I went to party and I got a fundamental change in my life of, of, I can just dance and enjoy it. So it brought me joy. It brought me in connection with others. And I wanted to get that across because I hear so many people. Yeah. I think I talked about this last time about, you know, they take the psychedelics and it's all about consciousness or the nature of reality and things like that. I don't want to take anything away from there. What it opened up for me was this social awareness and skills and emotional awareness and skills and these were really valuable for me. And you talked about legal, the legal side of things, having Martin Luther King, Gandhi, having been such great heroes of mine for breaking the law. I mean, nonviolent civil disobedience is a strategy that I find very effective. And so I don't connect law with morality always. No. So I am concerned that, I mean, I took ecstasy. I'd taken some other stuff earlier, as I think I mentioned, but I take it, I was like 27 or so, 28, and was done most of my thesis. And I think like, that's a pretty, that's a place in life where my, my work, my identity was solid enough that I wasn't going to get lost in anything. Cause you could, and I'm concerned about, you know, people too young shouldn't do, I don't think should do stuff. And so I don't, I don't want, I'm a little concerned about. Let's sort of go into this a little bit, because I think it's important for context. And again, we've mentioned context multiple times throughout the interviews here, but First of all, we are not condemning or condoning. What we're talking about is your experience and my experience. Those are not our waving the flag and saying you should or you shouldn't. This is not a moral argument, and this is not a political statement. This is an experience. And 
one of the things like, so when I did ecstasy the very first time, I can remember exactly where I was because it is a profound emotional experience. And I can remember exactly where I was and I can remember feeling. Um, so I, by my nature, um, <laughs> much to the surprise of people, including my wife, uh, I'm by nature a very shy person. I, that is my natural state. And I took this drug, ecstasy. I think I was uh, 30 at the time. I was in a Western Australia and I was out and I suddenly remember not feeling like a bump on a log, not feeling awkward, not feeling like, oh my God, I'm in this nightclub and I don't know who to talk to. And I would go in a nightclub and I'd have a good time, but I would really just dance on my own or if I was with my friends, I'd dance with my friends, but I would never talk to anybody. And to suddenly realize that all that shit was made up inside of my head, that those walls that were separating me and other people were just my stuff. And already, remember, I'd already been studying psychology for 11 years by the time I'm 30. So it's not like it's new to me. But the distinction with it, as is always the case for all of us, is there's a big difference between knowing and doing. So I knew all those things, but I wasn't able to get past them. And this was, for me, it was like that leverage point. I went, hold on a minute, let's just test this. And it gave me permission to test that and go, oh, I can talk to people. I can be open with people. I can have these vulnerable conversations with people. And through my work in neuroscience, uh, study of neuroscience, I went, okay, what's the neuroassociation here? And can I, can I build this into my nervous system? And I can. As If you're watching this on video, I have my hand up and I would drag my nail from the diagonal upper top to the diagonal bottom left. And I would just pull like this. And I dug my nail in so that every time I wanted to feel those feelings, when I didn't have the drug in my system, my nervous system would remember that that's what it meant. And I created a neuroassociation, which I still use before I go on stage to speak. And I was 30 a while ago, five or six years ago now. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think in many ways, my experience with it, your experience with it, and the people I know have not, not, just, not just ecstasy, but any drug. And when, again, not condemning and not condoning, but is to say that when there is a level of awareness, I think that that level of awareness is in not only as, as we talked about in the last episode, you know, watching the walls melt, but watching your own walls melt, getting past the illusions that you've been carrying around. And if you want to do that with psychotherapy, you can, obviously. You can do it by many means. But I think that one of the things that I loved about it, which is what you talked about just before we started recording, was this frame of reference. Now, you talked about a frame of reference. I can have a good time if I work hard. I get the movie if I've done the chores. I get the PhD if I study for 150 years and write a thesis. So therefore, I can only have fun when I've done enough work and you got that, oh, that's a lie. That's a lie. I can work and I can have fun, but they're not naturally or exclusive to each other. They can be independent of each other. Yeah, I can work hard and get no reward. Yes, yeah, so I, I wanted to get that clarification out there. And I, now I have to share a couple of other experiences. One was one time taking some ketamine with the ecstasy. And uh, one time I took enough that I just had no sense of reality anymore. I was like, 
I, I felt there was no me anymore. Like I didn't, I didn't, can't even identify what kind of thought I had, but I remember thinking I'm so far from reality now. I don't know how to get back. Like, I don't know where I am. I don't know anything. <laughs> and I was partly kind of scared, but I also knew there's nothing I could do. I could just, I don't usually talk this way, but I just surrendered to the moment. And next thing I knew, I kind of could sense things and it didn't take long until I was back here and regular reality. And I, I don't want to take away from how profound, like this lost, there's just no consciousness left as far as I could tell. But I mean, there's just enough to know that there wasn't anything more than that. Right. And then when I got back, I was like, oh, that was actually one of the most scary things I've ever experienced. I didn't feel scared, but I was like, this is going really be trouble. Like if I can't get back to reality, what am I going to do? And then I got back and I was like, that's given me a sense of ever since then, that's been like the high watermark of, of like in some direction of being scared. And it, it really helps the rest. I, I see why people use that stuff for therapy, for PTSD and stuff like that. Uh, that's not my world, but I hear about it. Yes. Um, and then I want to tie up together the drugs and the, and the, and the sex, the girl stuff. One time I was visiting this girl that I'd met when I was in Asia and we'd met a couple of times. I, I was going to visit her in Singapore and uh, there's no drugs in this part of the story. Uh, so we're walking around, she's living there studying or working and we turn a corner and we see the Marina Bay Sands, which I never, I didn't know about it. I just, I'd seen the pictures, pictures of it somewhere. People who don't, haven't seen it. It's like these three buildings with a kind of surfboard across the top. And it's a, it's a memorable, you know, it's an iconic building. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's that? She goes, that's Marina Bay Sands. And I go, what is it? She's like, it's a, it's a casino. It's a hotel. It's a luxury thing. And I was like, what's that stuff at the top? She's like, it's a big club. It's like swimming pools up there. And I go, we're going. And she goes, well, you got to get a room for the night. The room's like 400 bucks a night. And neither of us wanted to do that. And it's like, no, we're going up to the top. Because I'm thinking, New York City, very sophisticated club scene. I know how to get past doormen. I'm yes. going to get past the doormen at this place. And she's like, can't be done. And I say, we're doing it. So we walk in the, in the ground floor and we, we're walking and I have no idea what I'm going to do. All I can tell you is that this is after the business school and after all the clubbing stuff. And my, my social skills are pretty high. And I'm with a girl and, and I, man, oh. I'm not going to go into how, what this girl means to me, but anyway, she means a lot to me. And I'm thinking, how do I do this? What am I going to do? Do I go up to the door people, the check-in people and, and sweet talk them? or do I... So as we're walking in, I see some people getting in the elevator and I grab her and we go in the elevator. And sure enough, you have to put a card in and then you put your floor number. So this, the couple that was in there before puts their card in, puts a floor number. And I forget how many floors it is. Say it's hundred floors. They put in floor 50. So I say to them, I'm here with my girlfriend. Uh, we just want to go to the top. We're like awesome people. And so I got 50 flights to do an elevator pitch, right? And I tell them basically, we're, all, we're cool people. Can you put us into the roof? And they go, mm, okay. And they press the roof. <clears throat> so I'm like, great. But then they get out at 50. And I'm thinking, now it's also possible that there's going to be people to check ideas at the top. Luckily, somewhere on like floor 70, a new couple gets in. So now I got from 70 to hundred to be like, we're really cool. Can you say that we're with you? And they're like, mm, okay. So we get up to the top and they're like, yeah, they're with us. And so we get in. So there we are at the top of the Marina Bay Sands. Haven't paid anything. We were barely in the ground floor for like two minutes before I made things happen. She's like, what just happened? So we get up there and we weren't planning on anything. So I see the infinity pools and they're really cool. And uh, I'm wearing shorts. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to get down in my boxes. I'm going to swim here because I'm going to act like I own the place because I belong here. She didn't get into her bra and panties, but so she didn't get in the water, but I was just swimming around. And well, we also snuck off to a secret area and had some fun too, which I won't get into in details there. But this is the sort of thing that's like the social, I, there's no way as a physics PhD only 
that I would have had the the presence of mind or the skills to do something like that. I, I wouldn't have been open. How I met the girl in the first place was really a sweet story that I made happen. And to me, this is that, that was just fun. You know, so it, is all that like you know using that story of being there and going to that top floor, the infinity pools, and getting past all the barriers. What do you put that, do you put that down to, because as you said, you know, when you described your childhood and you described being an academic and all those kinds of things, those things don't fit. So do you put that down to your experiences with the pickup artists, the experiences with psychedelics, all of the above or something else altogether? Yeah, that was to me an integrated experience of putting it all together. It was spontaneous. It was fun. It was um, unrehearsed. It was very skillful and hurting no one. It, it doesn't. It only leaves the world, as far as I can tell, better. Right. But and, that's you see, that's my point that I'm trying to have people grasp here is that you know, what, as you know, I fell off a mountain uh, in 1990, got smashed to pieces, and I, in my recovery. I mean, I was in a really horrible place, but in my recovery, like I am a high stimulus, high creative, high intellect person. I need a lot of stimulus. I need that. And recovering from the fall, you know, there's a lot of stuff I couldn't do, including speak. So when I could, I was chomping at the bit and I love to learn. I'm highly curious. I love to learn. And I took an insurance course. The head guy from Prime America flew to Vancouver to train me because he'd heard about me, Randy Nelson. I still remember. Hi, I'm Randy Nelson. He had the accent and everything. And he took us down to Seattle, a buddy of mine and I, who's my buddy's very charismatic. We went down there. And then we came back and we did this course for six weeks. And honest to God, we had the, the my buddy and I had everybody in the class. It was like stand-up comedy, every session. We just took over. We had the teacher laughing. Strangely enough, we passed. Neither of us did any homework. We never studied apart from in class. And and people say to me, but what did you get out of that? And I said, do you think that I have to get insurance out of it? Because I don't remember a damn thing about insurance course. Honestly, nothing. And they said, well, isn't that where you go? And I go, no, I go to learn. But what I learn is not necessarily limited to what I'm studying. And you go, what do you mean? Sometimes you learn from the environment. Sometimes you learn in the environment and it's not about what you're there to study. So I don't think any learning is ever lost, but I believe that when you are open and willing and curious to question your own uh, systems, your own beliefs, your own structures, that you integrate the learning. So for me, you know, we can look at this in the objective blocks and say, okay, We've got Joshua grows up with a mom who is, uh, let's say, thrifty. Um, who is thrifty? Farm you know, girl. A, what's that? A farm girl. Yeah, and a farm girl, and you know, and 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 you know, the make your own soap kind of person. And you know, and you got your dad who's the academic, and you've got you know, and you've got the the do the chores, and then you can get rewarded, and then you you know, your dad who's an academic, and then you go off and you be an academic, and you, you study all those things, and quite separately, you've got the the, the study of being a pickup artist and then the experiences with, with drugs and, and being attracted to not your typical woman who would normally surround you. And it's easy to see these things in compartments, but I don't think they ever are. 
I think that you integrate them as part of the collective of who you are. And so I, th- I think in many ways your leadership study is part of your pickup artist study, but your pickup artist study is part of your ability to learn how to study academically and realizing that something is missing and it's this desire to be playful and to be fun and exploring that. And that, you know, you end up on a rooftop in Singapore having a spectacular time, but it's not because of one thing. It's this catalytic symphony of neuroplasticity that's all come together to create this being that is Josh Spodek that we'd like to shove in a box and say, well, this is who Josh is. You know, he's NYU professor. Yeah, but that's not who he is. That's a facet of a multifaceted diamond. Yeah, I I think it started off as separate things and the challenge is to integrate it. It doesn't have to integrate. And until until these conversations with you, they're integrated within me, but I don't think people see that. So I think people might see like a a Frankenstein sort of hodgepodge of things. Uh, And that's why one of the reasons why I've wanted to have these conversations so much is to have these things come out and to, well, no, I I take it back. They're not integrated if I can't share them because then I'm not sharing myself and my whole leadership practice. Another time I'll have to talk about how I put all this stuff together. Actually, I was in the Ask Women podcast where I first talked about how my coaching older guys led to my, the core of my leadership practice. And Mm -hmm. it's, that we'll have to wait for another time for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another integrated experience was one time when, you know, Jordan Harbinger, I I mean, he and I go way back because he was, you know, before, before the Jordan Harbinger show, there was the Art of Charm. And before the Art of Charm, there was him getting started. And he was like a big character on the pickup scene. Yep. And he and I got to be friends, you know, we'd go out for burritos when he lived in New York. Mm-hmm. And one time I'm talking to him and he just says, you know, we're going to North Korea. He and Joseph was the other guy's name. And I was just like, that sounds amazing. And he goes, do you want to come? And did I say this before? My mind is thinking, don't have the money, don't have the time, can't do it. My out come my mouth goes, comes yes. And it was just this great experience. And then after that, he said, Neil Strauss was going to be on the trip. And I was like, I'd met Neil briefly before, but not spending two weeks together in North Korea. So right. That, you know, it's yet another thing that came together. I didn't know Neil had gone with you. Yeah, it was uh, me, Jordan, Neil, and a bunch of other guys. And most of them knew each other a little better. And there were a few people who were in Neil's cadre, I guess. They were like followers, acolytes of Neil. I don't know how to put it. And actually, I've become very, very good friends with a couple of them. So that experience was just totally impromptu. I, I shouldn't have said yes, but now there's no way I could say no. And the reason I put the picture on the top of my blog of me swimming across the Hudson River that was with one of my great friends from the pickup world, the guy who taught me how to spin it, how to, how to throw a girl against the wall. Mm-hmm. I just had the idea of, could I swim that distance? I had no idea. And he said, let's do it. And so we did it. And people keep asking, how do you swim across the Hudson River? And there's only one answer to how to swim across the Hudson River. There's, it's not about preparation, all this stuff. You get in the water and you swim. That's it. There's nothing else to it. And to me, it's a crossing a Rubicon. I went across the river and it's interesting that we swam from New Jersey to Manhattan. I swam home. That's this transition that, for me, there's a lot of symbolism in that. Yeah. Interesting so, metaphor. Now, that was about the drugs. And you talked about how that integrated. Now, I have to go back to the girls because there was something that I alluded to that at the end of it, this is stuff, how this will come out, I don't know. I said it wasn't my 
burden or it wasn't my, you know, you got to pick your battles of so many, there's only so many things you can do in life. And, it, and men's rights wasn't going to be a big thing for me. And I talked about the experience of, of um, the having to register for the selective service when I turned 18 and my sisters didn't have to do that. And that was a little off. Mm-hmm. There's another big experience for me. I was on my roof having a drink with a friend of mine and we're pretty close and we'd gone back for years. And he shares with me that when he was 14 years old, a teacher of his, I don't know if it was sex, but a teacher of his was an adult and he was in way below the level of age of consent. And they had some sort of sexual relation. I don't know the details. Mm-hmm. I responded by, oh, cool. That must've been great. And he looks at me and he says, no, everybody reacts that way. And it was horrible and no one gets it. It's like something I can't share with anyone. No one takes me seriously. Everybody thinks, I mean, some people do, but most people think that it's like, oh, you're a guy, you got sex. Great. He said it was terrible. Mm-hmm. And it's, it took him years and years to be able to work that back into who he was. Yeah, I've had a couple experiences like that. And most of my relationships with women are wonderful with the individual women. So once in college, there was a girl that a friend of mine had a fling with, uh, a friend of mine told me about how he had this girl, like basically had sex with him, totally voluntary, totally, uh, totally consenting. Mm-hmm. And they weren't having a relationship. It was just like, she was in the dorm room. And anyway, so I met her and I was like, oh, I'm gonna have sex with her too. And so we got to be friends. And then she, she had her way with me. It was like, she, this is college. I think by then she'd had, I mean, several dozen sexual partners by this point and incredibly intelligent, very accomplished. I think she'd published by this point as an undergrad in scientific journals. She was captain of a sports team. And I was like, this is a wonderful person. And I knew I wasn't going to get emotionally attached to her or not intensely emotionally attached to her. So we had a good little fling and we got to be friends. Now I know that independent of me, there were other, like she would, she'd have sex with one guy and then have sex with his best friend. And she was like tearing up, like leaving a wake of destruction behind her. But if you got who she was, no problem. That wasn't my relationship with her. Anyway, so fast forward to years later, I'm in graduate school back at Columbia. And she tells me she's coming back to New York. She's married now, living somewhere else. And I think, well, I like sex, but I've had sex with her already. I don't want to like get in, in, in the mix. This is, by the way, before any of the pickup stuff. Right. So I decided internally, but I didn't say to her, I was not going to have sex with her this visit, although I was really delighted to see her. So we go out for drinks. She gets me wasted drunk. I'm in my 20s. We go back to my dorm. And the last I could have voluntarily consented, I was would have said no. But we have sex. Mm-hmm. I think by most definitions in today's world, that would be called rape. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, in fact... I can clarify further that she had this little trick that she could have insertion happen without using her hands. So I'm lying on my back. She does a little trick with her hips and then I'm inside her. I didn't do that. And had I had, had she asked, I would have said no. I now I don't want to connect with what my friend said about when he was 14. I didn't feel devastated by this at the time, but I did realize I was not in control of that situation. Now, fast forward to after pickup stuff, there was a girl that I, oh man, she was so attractive and she was so, it was really good experiences with her, but we didn't really get along that well. And so at some point she was over at my apartment one time and I was saying, we can't continue seeing each other. It's not working out. And she wants to work things out in some way. We've done that before. I, I just don't see any of this going on. And I'm saying, look, we can't keep doing this. And 
she doesn't want to leave the apartment and she's in my apartment and I want her to leave. And she starts, I forget the order of things, but she starts like hyperventilating, not seriously, but just, and I can't tell if it's serious or if she's faking it or what. And so I walk over to the door and say, look, you have to leave. And I open the door and she sits down on the ground and I'm like, all right, I'm not going to go anywhere near her because it's dawning on me the power that she has. And at one point she gets to where she's sitting leaning against the door. So the door's open and I can't close it without either touching her, or touching the door to move her. And I'm like, holy cow. Mm. She's sitting in my apartment on the floor. I've had nothing to do with this and I can't close the door. The power that she has in the situation to completely destroy my life if she wanted to is like off the charts. And I'm like really freaked. I'm freaked out. And also like, what can I do? I'm really scared. Mm-hmm. And my neighbor walks by and sees, sees this happening. And I'm like, oh, how do I explain this? And the woman is like, is everything okay? And the, and the girl says, yes, everything's fine. But she's still lying, not lying, but sitting on the ground. And I'm standing far away from her. Now she could say, if she wanted to, he knocked me down on the ground. She doesn't say that. But so the neighbor's like, you, is everything okay? And there's a, there's a firehouse across the street from me. So they, I think she called either the firehouse. Anyway, someone, someone in a uniform shows up. And now there's a guy in a uniform looking at this girl on the ground in my apartment, me standing away. And one thing I know is like, never let a cop into your house. I don't know if it's a cop or a, a firefighter or an ambulance person, but I can't stop a guy from coming in my apartment when the girl's sitting on the ground looking like she's in trouble and I'm just standing up perfectly fine. But I had nothing to do with her being on the ground except that asking her to leave my apartment. So, and then they say, should we call an ambulance? And suddenly she is like completely lucid. And she's like, no, 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 no ambulance, which I'm taking is that she doesn't want, I, I think an ambulance trip in this country might hit you back 10,000 bucks. I'm guessing that she's like, I don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. So eventually I think they take her out and she leaves and no one, no one says, have you hit this girl or anything like that? But it's really like a very serious moment. And I don't know anyone in my immediate family. There's been one case that I know of where someone has des- described as being on the receiving end of, an, of an abusive relationship. Yeah. My mother, and it came, I, I'm not that close with my stepbrother, especially since we've grown up and gone off to college and things. Mm-hmm. My mother described the relationship between him and the mother of his child as her abusing him and that she's, she's using the justice system to abuse him get money from him, take the kids from him, sorts of things like that. And that's in my, in my closest situation, he is by my mom's description, a victim of abuse. And I never thought of it that way until she put it that way. So I got to give a couple other stories. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Can I just jump yeah. in for a minute? Because I want people to, to grasp something here that you've talked about. You know, because we've talked about a lot of different things. And, and leadership is, by virtue of its statement, 
um, a position of power. And abuse is a position of powerlessness, where one's power appears to be taken away. And I am very pro the Me Too movement, but I am also very cautious of the Me Too movement. Um, I don't believe every person should be believed. Every woman should be believed, but I do believe every woman has the right to be heard and she needs to be, it needs to be investigated thoroughly. But there is a natural bias towards the man being the powerful one. And I get it and I understand it and I, I don't have any argument with it, but the white male system, and you can do the research on, just look up that term, the white male system has been incredibly disempowering to men as you talked about men having to go and do service and all those kinds of things that are not asked of women and that men die younger and that men go to go to prison far more often than women do in in correlation of population and i think that what's really important is to recognize that it is possible to be powerless even as a quote powerful man you know the idea of men being raped was a ludicrous idea 30 years ago. It's not so ludicrous anymore. We kind of get that. We understand that. I know because I worked as a therapist and I worked with men who were physically and emotionally abused inside of their relationships who couldn't tell anybody because nobody would believe them because they would often get labeled as quote unquote, and it's, I don't like the term, but they would be called a pussy because some woman had beaten them up. But you can't defend yourself because if you defend yourself, then you're a perpetrator. So, you know, I want people to just pause for a minute and just imagine the anxiety of being that guy standing there, not touching the woman, not having touched the woman, and having her in your doorway looking like she has been pushed down, looking like she is the victim. And really, no matter what you say, you're kind of dead in the water. You don't really have a chance. And I know personally, when I've been accused of something that I have not done, I know personally men that I know who have been accused of things they have not done by vindictive women. And I am a huge women's rights guy. And I am a huge supporter of women in leadership and all those kinds of things. But more than men's rights or women's rights, this is about human rights and the willingness to hear both sides. But it's difficult to move our bias out of the way. And I get that for anybody listening. And that's why I really appreciate you sharing that story because it gives people a way to, again, we've talked about this many times here, it gives people a way to shift context from their own bias. And that is vitally important message in this conversation is to shift the bias to the context, the bias of pickups, heavy bias, but the context was completely different. The bias of drugs, heavy bias, different context. The bias of a woman being in an apartment, a woman having sex with a man, heavy bias. Like you said, oh, that must have been great. No, not so much. So I, I really appreciate you bringing this forward so that the listeners can really grasp this understanding of here's your bias and your bias can be wrong if you look at context because if it's a silent movie with no frame 
no as in no backup frame, and you see a guy having sex with a girl, you go, oh, great. Well, hold on a second. Did he consent? That's a question. So I think it's yeah. really important. Yeah, this all, I'm glad you're putting the context back in it. There's how I felt after my friend told me how he felt. Mm-hmm. I mean, intellectually, I was like, wait, what was I, what were my biases? What was I thinking beforehand? Emotionally, I felt like, like a slug. I felt so low. Like, how could I have been so cruel to him? I mean, I could easily say, well, everyone else was too. And, but man, did I, what was I, how cruel was I to him? Out of my ignorance, but nonetheless, it was not, I wasn't saying it out of compassion. Actually, this girl, uh, the one with the doorway, the sex was amazing. I mean, there was, she really liked being choked. It, this is kind of an interesting thing. So she was like, I'd never heard of it before. And I was like, is it that you like the restriction? Do you like the vulnerability? And she, I mean, I do what I often do. It's like, I try to, I'll try it this way. I'll try it that way. See what she likes more. And anyway, this one time, the, well, the first time she told me about it, I was like, she was asking and reading her reactions. Afterward, she said three words. I, I, I love this. She says, this is before that incident. She was, you choke well. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So anyway, she's not done in my life yet because she came back later, which I'm going to tell about. But I wanted to, in between there uh, was my time in China. And China, there was one incident where I went out to some club and uh, met this girl and we were having a really great time. And we were going out in the club, making out. And um, like her friends came by at one point. And I don't, I don't, I don't know how it sounds. I mean, this is how I would talk with guy friends. It's just like I was fingering her. And she was totally into it. And we were having a great time. And her friends come over. And so now I was on a stool by a table and she was standing facing me. So my, my fingers, I don't know, you can figure out the, the logistics of it. And then her friends come by. So she now moves from facing me to facing them. She's, she's at my, at my, to my right or my right shoulder and her left shoulder kind of touching. And I'm still fingering her and her friends are there and we're kind of talking and they don't realize what's going on. Cause, and so it's even extra sexier. Mm-hmm. So then we come back to my place afterward. We take a taxi back and I'm staying in like, um, I don't know what you call it. It's like corporate housing, not like a hotel, but like there's a kitchen and stuff like that. Anyway, we're back at my place. And by now it's not yet the sun coming up, but it's pretty late and we've been drinking and stuff. So I don't think drugs, cause I, I don't want to mess with that in China. Anyway, so we get back and she wants to have sex. And at this point, my body's not performing. With the girl earlier back at my place when I was in my twenties, she could get me as drunk as, as she wanted. And, and my body was still getting what she, she it was still reacting. So I, I can't, I'm not getting hard. Right. She's like, well, do you have anything? And I'm like, what? And she goes, do you have anything? And well, I happen to have some Viagra that a friend of mine who has a prescription gave me some that I just had. And I mentioned that to her and she's like, well, take it. I was like, oh man, I don't want to. Cause if I take it, it's going to take half an hour before it acts. And then it's going to take hours and hours and hours. It's going to be my system. And I don't want to get started on that now. And she's like, take it, take it, take it. And like, she just lays on me. And sometimes I hear women talk about how men just lay on them and just, they, they don't stop pestering. They don't stop pestering. They don't stop pestering. I'm like, yeah, I've been on the receiving end of that. She just pesters and pesters and pesters and pesters and pesters. And finally I'm like, okay, fine. So I take it. And then like, she's like, is it working? I'm like, I just took it. And then like, she's just like, is it working? Is it working? And then finally, after like 10 minutes, I'm like, I think it's kind of working. She's like, okay, let's go. And so I guess at some point it starts kicking in and I start, it's, it's kind of working, but not really fully yet. So we have sex and then she's like, great. All right, time to go. And so now the sun is coming up and I walk her out to catch a taxi 
And, uh, and she catches taxi and leaves. I think she's, I don't think I ever got her name. And so I get back to the apartment or the, the space and now I'm like hard as a rock. And I'm like, damn it, this is what I was trying to avoid. But my point is that she was just pestering and pestering. And I'm like, I keep hearing it the other way. And my personal experience is not that. Mm-hmm. And this, the men are generally, the average man is stronger than the average woman. In a dark alley, in a room by themselves, the guy's got more upper body strength. Sure. That strength is, and, and I, I noticed that most presidents and Supreme Court justices and congressmen, are, they're men. Mm-hmm. How that translates, I mean, it's absolutely out. There's no part of my brain that is thinking, well, maybe I'll just knock her down and like, and pin her down and have my way with her. Like that has, it's not. And yet it's like, well, you could, you might I'm like, that's not, I can't, I, it's so out of my world that it's not even, I can't even comprehend that someone would think because you are a man, you are a potential rapist. That is as, that's just saying something about someone because of their sex. But that's not what I'm getting at is that the power in my muscles relative to hers is nothing compared to, in my experience, the power that a woman has if she chooses to exercise it to, okay. So now let me get to the. Um, well, before you go on any further, you just said the power a man has if he chooses to exercise it, but the power a woman has if she chooses to exercise it. And that's the key point. If, if they choose to exercise it, so there is more physical strength in a man. Okay, but there's a piece here that I think is so vital for us to grasp is that we cannot hold the bias of a gender. We cannot hold the bias of an entire gender and say, oh, well, they're like this. That's not true. Uh, like I, I've done so much work on this and, and had many battles even with other people who are neuroscientists and stuff and said, listen, I don't believe your nonsense. And they're like, what do you mean? I go, you know, well, the male brain is different than the female brain. Yes, because of epigenetics. It's environmental. There is neuroplasticity. The male brain is not different than the female brain. The male brain is changed during its environment. And yes, there are certain social conditionings that create, set us up for certain things. And yes, there is a biology too. We're not denying that. We're not saying that's any different. But at the same time, to say, well, all men are, is ludicrous, because if all men are potentially rapists, then how do you get a gay man who's never forced himself on anybody, <laughs> let alone a woman, but anybody? I mean, how do you say that women are all manipulative and, and vixens? That's a ludicrous statement. All those things are ludicrous. And, and where we fall apart is we don't bother to look at people we look at groups, we look at blocks of gender or of a specific socioeconomic group, and it's just not true. I mean, I hear people say things like, you know, well, um, people would do a lot better if they ate better. Okay, that's true. You know, people's immune system would be better if they ate better. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of Bill Maher, and he talks a lot about, you know, part of the immune system problem is, is, is eating. Yes, that's very true, Bill, and I'm a big fan of Bill Maher. But at the same time, let's remember that it's cheaper to feed your kids at McDonald's than it is to actually go out and buy healthy salad stuff. That's not choice. That's economics. 
that you can actually give your kids a hamburger and a drink and some fries, and they all will go to bed with a full tummy, even if it's terrible food, but you don't feel like a bad parent because you just didn't go to bed hungry because you could feed them on that cheaper than you could feed them on any organic food. There's a context that's like, I know we keep drilling into context, but we've got to bring everybody back to context. So every piece of what you've said has to be separated into context rather than than glued into, oh my God, this man is a. But if I were a woman and I said these exact same things, if someone had asked, I would have said no, but he got me so drunk. And then he, without my doing anything, he inserted himself into me. No one would say, well, we have to put context around this. What, let's understand. Let's, let's, let's understand who he is here and the differences between people be like, holy cow, press charges. Yeah. And the reason I brought up the, um, the thing about the choking was not about the choking, but it was about a lot of times people say, well, porn teaches boys, all this stuff. I didn't come up with choking. Things that came into my life from women insisting on it with me would be anal sex, oral sex. Uh, all these things were like women brought to me. I didn't come up with these things. I mean, they're very common, but the oral sex, I didn't know about it. And then my high school girlfriend was like, she wanted to. I was like, what is it? And same with anal sex and all these other things that were like, in my experience, my sexual horizons have been broadened by women and brought to me by women. And I knew all about porn before that. Well, not before the oral. Oh, I knew about some porn before that. But, and my experience is so different than the world. I'm like, Everything they keep saying, all the stuff that they keep, how do I put this? There's something that, there's a demonizing of men that just does not fit my story, my history at all. And I'm not looking for this stuff. And that's why I, I don't make it my battle because it's, um, the environment is a bigger thing. And by the way, I can feed kids for cheaper on organic, fresh vegetables than anyone can from McDonald's. But that's a whole, that's not part of this conversation, but I, I can't help it. I, I have to say that because my famous no packaging vegetable stews, which you're invited to dove when you come over. And so I get back from China now and now I'm with, I'm dating a girl and it's a relationship that I have for like five years. And she and I at this stage are experimenting with not being exclusive. So I get in touch with the girl from the, the doorway and I say, let's get back in touch. And I'm very open with her. I tell her I'm in a non-exclusive relationship and the other girl knows she doesn't know about any details, but this is all within the realm of what we've said is okay. And she's like, well, that's fine for you. And we can talk, but I don't want any relationship with a guy who's not with me. So I'm like, okay, fine. And at some point she invites me over to her place. And I'm thinking, I guess she changed her opinion. And we go over to her place. I go over to her place and she makes me dinner. And that night, a similar thing happens where I'm on my back. She is on top and she descends onto me. And I'm thinking, I've been very open with her. I haven't, I haven't hidden anything. I, I haven't told my girlfriend's name to her. She doesn't know who that girl is, but she knows that she exists. The next morning, we're having breakfast, and I mentioned the other girl, and she starts freaking out. And people said, Josh, that was very insensitive of you. But I thought it was open about... Anyway, she gets really angry at me, and she kicks me out, and she's crying. And I, I'm a bit... I feel bad, but I also feel like I, I didn't say or do anything deceptive in any way. So I don't know if she's going to be mad forever, if she's mad for a little bit or what. So I, I keep contacting her for a bit and she's really angry at me. And at one point I'm with my girlfriend and she's on Facebook. I have no idea how this happened, but she, I saw a friend connection request from the girl to my girlfriend. I'm like, how did 
how did she figure that out? I I don't know that I put it up online anywhere. I don't know how she could possibly have gotten it. It must have taken some work to get there. And she's really pissed at me. And she wants vengeance. And this is why I'm afraid to have mentioned all of this stuff. It's because there is a girl out there who I hope that she has moved on. I hope that she's happy. I would talk to her if she wanted to talk to me. But she want, as far as I could tell, she wanted to hurt me. And she was going past just me. And I'm not afraid in any way of people knowing what happened. I would be happy for people to know what happened. Mm-hmm. What I'm afraid of is that there's a hashtag that says believe women. And there's no hashtag that says believe men. And if she chose to act on her anger, which I hope is over, or I'm, if she chose to, she could destroy me. And if she, it's possible that her memory could be different than mine. Of course. It's, I think my memory is accurate, but there's no way of knowing, but she might come out and say something. And, and I'm totally at her, I'm in a sense at her mercy, because if I say hashtag me too, people will say it's not for you. But my experience is these experiences, if a woman had them, would be exactly what me too is for. And if I said, believe me, everyone would say, that's not what it's about. You are privileged. And when people call me privileged, you were talking about food and that's when people call me privileged most is when I talk about when people are over for my famous no packaging vegetable stew and I say, anyone can do this. And they say, yeah, you don't know because you're privileged. Okay. I live in Manhattan. I live in Greenwich Village. There's farmer's markets near me. I'm not in a food desert, but they don't know that I've lost my job in my, in my apartment in the same day and things like that. And they say, well, there's nothing that I can say or do that stops people from saying that's actually an example of how privileged you are. Mm. If I say no one wrote my thesis for me, I finished all these marathons. No one took any step for me. I had to do all those. Well, they say, yeah, it's made for you. Everyone else, it's hard for them, but for you, it's somehow easier, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I might say, this woman did, I, it seems to fit many people's definition of rape. And I say, well, it didn't really affect me. And they're like, see how privileged you are. It's like, there's no way out of it. The more that I, if I try to explain it, they say that's actually an example of how privileged you are. Yeah. And you know, just, I want to put something here forward. You may remember many years ago, Oprah was sued by the Texas meat uh, rangers, right? Yeah. The rangers of meat and, you know, um, because she did a show in which she showed the processing of meat to turn into hamburgers. And she said, Ugh, I don't think I'll ever eat meat again. And she said it quite jokingly. And she has continued to eat meat. So clearly that was, there was no ill intent. She was just making a personal observation. They took her to court. They sued her. They said that she was anti-meat and she was trying to... I think it was libel was the... Was the... Yeah, all kinds of things that came up around it. And Oprah, who I actually have a lot of respect for personally, and I know people don't like her and people do like her. I have a lot of respect for her, enormous. And Oprah said, you know, she was exhausted by this court case. I mean, and she was still doing a show every single day from Texas. And she said she was exhausted. And then one day she came on and she said, it's done. And then she told the story and she said, here's what happened. She goes, every day I would go to bed and I'd cry and say, how can they say these things about me? How can they say that I'm that person? I'm not that person. 
And she said she battled with that over and over and over again. How could they say these things? I'm not that person. She said, and then one particular night, she was praying and she said, how can, I say, how can they say these things? I'm not that person. And she said, hold on a second. I'm not that person. It doesn't matter what they say. I have to know who I am. And I think, I think that that's little consolation if you're in jail for something, of course, or in prison for something. But the truth of the matter is at a soulful level, you have to know who you are. I've been accused of things I've not done. And I, at the same time, I understand through neuroscience that the personal memory is incredibly faulty. Incredibly. The re- reason that courts can't trust eyewitnesses is because they're not reliable. That's the evidence. They're just not reliable. It used to be the most reliable evidence. It's not. So you've got to know who you are. This is why one of the reasons self-awareness is so important. You've got to know who you are. And I know that I have done things or behaved in ways that I'm not entirely proud of due to consuming too much of something. Yes, I get that. But I know who I am. You know who you are. And they, this, for instance, this, this woman could listen to this and she could still be carrying that vendetta and she could uh, attack you. Of course she could. But you have to know who you are. And I think that when you do that, you know, I was watching a a thing yesterday with some friends of mine who are peers, who just did a big study on Joe Biden responding to uh, the sexual assault charges. Mm -hmm. He's being interviewed on TV and they're analyzing his micro cues and his body language and paying attention to all of that just to see whether he's telling the truth or telling lies. And, and the bottom line is there are things that you will reveal that are just who you are, and that's what we all have to know. So, yes, she may come after you. Yes, she may hear this. Yes, she may take it all. But you have to be, okay, here's who I am, and they may say whatever they say. And you don't have any control over that. And yes, you're right. There are bias that says a certain gender is more believable than another gender. But that doesn't change who you are. Because you've not held anything back here. You know, you've talked about some things that are a bit iffy in some people's eyes. But we give it context and we say, okay, hold on a second. Is that aligned with who you are? Yes. I think that's a very important point. Yeah. I'm listening to you and I, I don't really, I'm kind of spent at this point. I mean, there's, you know, there's another, after all this, there's a friend of mine who has engaged to this woman and she, she once hit him and it occurred to me. And then her mother justified it and set, and supported her daughter. And I thought, how can you sleep in a bed knowing that the woman could hit you? There, I mean, you may have more strength, but you got to fall asleep at some point. He broke that off and no woman I don't believe that I've ever been asked to consent. I've, no one's ever asked to consent. I don't think I've ever been asked that. And I've had a lot of partners. Mm-hmm. And no one ever suggests that they should. I'm sure some people have, but not in the, in the way that it's like. So for me to succeed. There is a clear double standard though, right? It That's seems to me that way. That's been my experience. I mean, mm-hmm. 
I've, I've seen the other side. I mean, I, I volunteered for two years to help with Take Back the Night at Barnard. And I, as a man, if I don't say women are the victims of lots of things and all this other stuff that everyone, it's so everywhere. I really have to say that or else people will be like, yeah, well, you're just, I, I believe that I've seen the other side, that I haven't experienced it. I have not been a woman who's been overpowered or anything like that. But for me to succeed at what I want to do, my greatest passion these days is to change the cultural view of acting with stewardship to something of anticipating joy and community and connection and release from these beliefs that all these trappings of modern life, which now I see as craving, but as I grew up thought, I want more things. I want more stuff. I, Oh, my friend has more. I want that. All right. And I thought flying was a, a way to get adventure and, and to see family. And now I see that those are things actually that are dangled in front of us, like a ring through a bull's nose that they can yank us by our, by our cravings. Yeah. And for me to succeed at this means I have to get popular. I have to get well-known, which makes me extremely vulnerable for something that there's zero reason for me, for me to be vulnerable for based on if only there'd been like some cameras watching all of this, but actually I'm at the whim of this woman. Mm -hmm. And all the messages I see in the world are believe her and me too, but me too is not for me. And that's the fear. So when we, when we stopped talking at the end of the second episode, I mean, the topic was, was drugs, but I'd also realized that my, your disarming of me, my, my not protecting myself. This is something I've talked about to very few number of people. And I don't want to make it a big deal. It, it doesn't seem like it should be a big deal. It's, it doesn't seem relevant to the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the amount of plastic in the ocean and the, and the methane and all that stuff. And the misery that people are like, every, every time someone says what I do doesn't matter, it breaks my heart. What I do doesn't matter is the most disempowering. It's shoving self-awareness down. It's, mm -hmm. it's taking away your agency and everything. And that's the last thing we want to do. For, I mean, that's like the last thing I think anyone wants in their life. Imagine your parents saying to you, it's okay, son. It's okay, daughter. What you do doesn't matter. If a parent said that, it would be crazy. And that's crazy. the world we live in. It's abusive but parenting. It, I would, it certainly looks that way. And, and so for me to talk about how I'm scared of this woman who somehow found my girlfriend and contacted her, that doesn't, it shouldn't be relevant. And yet, actually, when I talk to guys who have, who have learned attraction so that they know how to be very attractive to women, stories like this abound of the aggression of women, of a woman who just wants it. Whatever I'm not saying it means sex. It wants something and will do what it takes to get that. And they can exercise power in ways that mainstream doesn't cover. And so the women in my life that I've loved and who've loved me, they've been deeply, deeply loving relationships. And it's a lot of what's made me the man that I am. In it. And I can't possibly thank them enough, even for the times they rejected me for parts of me that I'm glad that they rejected because that's, I've learned to change those things. I, I'm not talking about women here. I'm talking about society. That that's what I'm really scared of. That society gives this power that is unrecognized. Yeah, women I love. I mean, there are women that I've loved, and women are like men. I mean, the women that aren't the ones that I personally have relationships with, they're people like anyone else. Mm -hmm. But I'm really scared of 
of what could come of this. And I'm sure there are people right now listening to this saying, this is an example of how privileged he is, or this is an example of how men don't get it or something like that, at which I've now come to conclude that they were going to think that no matter what. Yeah, but there's also going to be people listening to this, Josh, who are going to say, oh my God, I'm not the only one who feels this way. Oh my God, I've been that. I remember being 20, almost 21, and being with a girl, uh, living with a girl who phoned my father and had him come to my apartment saying that I had hit her. Now, you should know that my father was a violent partner to my mother. And he shows up with his girlfriend. So my mom and dad divorced when I was seven. So, you know, I'm in my adult life. Obviously, it's a long time afterwards. And he shows up and he is just giving me shit like, you know, I can't believe you. It's such a low life. You did this. You hit a woman, blah, blah, blah. And I said, can I speak? And he said, no, you don't get to speak. You know, this is a man who has been the thing he's accusing me of. And the truth of the matter was that while I was asleep, she pulled the blankets over my head, got on top of me, kneeled over my shoulders and beat the snot out of me while I laid in bed asleep. I woke up to being punched, but I was the one who hit her because eventually I was able to get an arm free and push her off. Mm -hmm. So I hit her. And that's 40 years ago. So I understand that even 40 years ago, that framework was there, even the framework and the bias coming from a man who was guilty of it. Mm -hmm. So I get it that my greatest concern is always with the nuance you know there's this uh, let's just take for a second as we record this we're in the time of social isolation and and the pandemic and there are people screaming about viruses and people screaming about vaccines and people upset with social distancing and people saying let me go back to work and people are saying you're a complete lunatic blah 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 but there is nuance to all of that those are all broad headline pieces. Conspiracy theories. Oh, you know, you have to trust this person. No, you don't trust that person. Hold on. There's a nuance to all of it. And we are too damn lazy to stop and say, hold on a second. What are the specifics of this particular instance? Not what is the gender, not what is the politics, but what is the nuance? What is the subtlety? What is the context? All those things matter. And I think they matter more now than they ever did because we're lazy. So, yes, I can be accused of things, as can you, as can anybody. But I think I've written about this. I've spoken about this. We live in, in, in a world where we believe there's this thing called um, innocent until proven guilty. And the truth of the matter is, it is guilty till proven innocent. That's where we actually live. And until we are willing to examine context, nuance, subjectivity, we don't get it. We never will. And that's the laziness. That's the, the importance of saying, hold on a second. We need to stop and say, what, 
what are we not seeing? What is there that is undeniable? And so, yes, women have gone through horrendous things at the hands of men. I'd be the first to agree with that. I, I, when I first started as a therapist 150 years ago, you know, I worked with women who were abused. That was my specialty. And the stories were insane. But I also met many men who were abused. And as you said, their voices were quietened. And if it was sexual, they were ridiculed. Nuance, context, subtlety, subjectivity, all vitally important things. So yes, I think that it's very likely that there's men and women listening to this and saying, I am so glad he shared this because I'm not the only one or I understand this in a way that I'd never understood it before. So I want to thank you for for bringing this up. And as we come towards the end of this episode, I want to say, I would like for you to bring it into context because your show is leadership in the environment. But what is, what is, stewardship to you when it comes to the environment? What does that mean? When you think about everything that we've talked about over these many hours, what does that mean in the context of what we've talked about? Stewardship and the environment. Well, I want to, you're making me think about the arc of these conversations and my original overt, like what I was aware of at the beginning was, there's a conversation I had with my mom a few years ago to prepare for this. My first main preparation, which was She'd been saying for years, Josh, you're, you're more on stage. You have this presence and you're more friendly and all that you speak more openly. And I'd always told her, well, that's because of business school leadership classes. And that's what I'd always said. And then one day I, I realized I wanted to say what if all this stuff. Well, and I sat down with her and I said, mom, just so you know, there was the girls and there was the drugs. And those are integral parts of uh, integral uh, parts of who I've become and why this stuff that you've observed, I only told you a third of it. Well, there's also the acting lesson, so maybe a quarter of it. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is stuff that I, I want to share with you before anyone else. Because if you tell me not to, maybe there's a reason I shouldn't share it. And she was like, she reacted generally positive, neutral to positive, or neutral to supportive, I should say. And then I shared it with a couple other people, especially with my older sister, because I'm, uh, I'm close with her her kids, my nephew and two nieces, and they'll eventually hear it, I guess. Uh, and I spoke to a few people. And so what my, my original intent was to share my foundation for leadership, the, the parts of the foundation in leadership that come from the girls and the drugs. Not the girls, the, the pickup stuff, the learning attraction stuff. The support that you've given me brought me to, well, first to talk about the drugs in, in the second episode, which I didn't think that was going to come, but so soon, but so, so it happened. And then at the end of that conversation to realize if that's what people thought I was scared of sharing, that's not what I'm sure. I'm scared of sharing that, but it's really where that led. And then I'm uh, that I, I have this fear of, of this being the fear I described. So there's a couple of, I really want to get out there how my learning attraction, the, the way that you learn it through practice, active, experiential project-based learning, that's what it is. No, one's, no one calls it that way because the world of, of like teaching education and getting master's degrees in education and the world of, of teaching attraction and getting, getting people laid, it's like there's, there's not a whole lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. But in my world, that level of digging out my – yeah, when I was a kid growing up, men, emotions, there was either like macho or there was like the uh, sense of new age guy. And 
but now it's an integrated part that is, it's the guys that I hang out with is very high emotional awareness, but not sensitive new age guys type stuff. It's there's, I won't go into all that, but except to say that that led to how I teach it, how I practice it in a way that another episode I'll have to get into it. But in, in that episode of ask women, I kind of get into it towards the end of that episode. Then the social, a lot of people say that the emotions that you feel in drugs are fake. I would clarify the way you get them is not the usual way, but the emotion is just as real as any other emotion. You feel it. I didn't feel that compassion and the fun and the, the closeness with everyone, the empathy that wasn't fake, nor was it new. It's just, I hadn't felt it so strongly before. I could access that anytime that I wanted. And it taught me to get that. So you did it. Yeah. You, he's indicating the, the scratching on the hand for me. It's, um, I realized there's a part of me that I, I can access one way. I'm going to get, get access it other ways. And that's why when people talk about the environment, I'm like, it's about people. It's about social and emotional connection and skills and awareness. And this was my access to it was through learning social, emotional skills of relationships. And I, I have to say that what I practiced ex- overtly was to meet women and, 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 and attract them. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's all relationships. Yeah. And then as for myself, my own personal experience of these things, that experience, those experiences that I had in the clubs with the, with the ecstasy, that's something that I'm trying to create more of connection and bonding. And that's why I talked earlier. Like, I love when people come back to me and they say, I did this and it, it opened up this world for me. It's, abstract environment. I love the environment. I'm happy. Like I just saw a bright yellow bird out the window. It was so beautiful. And I mean, it's so bright yellow. It just doesn't measure up as much as I love that. It doesn't measure up to sharing with another person that and leading another person to a place where they appreciate that. And they want to steward that. Stewardship is, I would have a great time if I caught a flight and went to Thailand and, and sampled the food there because I love the food there more than any other food in the world or even, or Italy, which is the next best place or, you know, the Mediterranean. I would love that. And man, it would be great to live in a world, the world that I hope to help bring about where we voluntarily, non-coercively through creating abundance to, for everyone and stability to live in a world where a flight or two a year is within what the earth can regenerate, but that's not the world we live in. And I hope to help create that. In the world that I live in, that hurts people. Mm-hmm. That's not my choice. That's not my opinion. We can look away from that if we want, and that would be the opposite of stewardship. And that would be saying, I don't care who gets hurt. I want it. Mm-hmm. Stewardship is I care about others, and I'm willing to put their interests, our collective common interests, ahead of my own here and there. And my experience doing leadership workshops at West Point and working with generals and working with Marine Corps generals, service, honor, it's so, there, there's no going back. That's a big shift in my life. That's one of the main shifts in that swimming across the Hudson was it is to service to others. As Francis Hesselbein, my, my mentor says, to service, to live. And the feeling that we have access to of putting others well-being on par or ahead of our own. It's teamwork. It's oneness. It's a sense of, it, it is the, I'm not a parent, so I can't say, I can't speak for parents, but as far as I can tell, this is as great a feeling as any, is to feel 
a part of something greater than yourself, to give everything you've got in the cause of something greater than yourself, greater than all of us. That is what stewardship is, opens the door to acting on it. That's what this is about. And I have no idea how to communicate this in any way other than to lead someone to a point where they experience it themselves. I've never been able to communicate it in words. I don't believe it can be communicated in words. I hope to find a way and I'm struggling for that. But what I'm trying to get across. You know, because my question was, how does this all connect to leadership? in the It's not about electrons and positrons. It's not about carbon dioxide. It's not about mercury. That is the external manifestation of our beliefs, our identities, our goals, our hopes, our dreams. And if that is, I went on a walk, a walk with my mom today and as usual, I pick up a piece of trash, but I picked up all the, not even, not even close to all the stuff I passed by and my hands are full every single time. And we're on the middle, not nowhere, but you know, kind of close to it. If that's the out, outward manifestation of who we are inside, who we are inside is rotten and dirty and polluted. And we don't have to be that way. That's, yes, there's external context and the systems that make it that way, but we have choice in the matter. We can do something about that. And if we do something about that in ourselves, we'll be happier, I believe. And if we do that in ourselves, then that will propagate to the rest of the world. But as you said, so much of this, okay, let's not talk about the environment. Let's talk about something else altogether. It doesn't matter. Everything you have brought this back to, what I've heard, is about how to connect with each other, humans, in a deeper, more meaningful way and to live in harmony with each other, respecting each other, honoring each other in, in the context of the way each of us live and to find ways to come and do that together better in a way that is more honoring and honorable to everybody. And that then filters down and becomes, oh, well, why would I treat the environment badly? And why would I treat another human badly? And how can I be better at relationships? And how can I be at a better my relationship with, with Gaia, with the planet, with, you know, all of these things. So in so many ways, Josh, what I've heard is this continuous theme of relationships and getting better at them by getting better at being a better human being, by knowing yourself better, you have a deeper relationship with others. And in getting you to know yourself better and having a deeper relationship with others, you get to have a deeper relationship with your world. And by getting deeper knowledge of yourself and deeper relationship with others and deeper relationship with that which surrounds you, you have a deeper relationship with your, not just your environment, but the environment. And I think that that is a, really solid place for us to close up this particular episode. I want to thank you for your vulnerability, your strength, your courage, your commitment to reveal uh, what most people would consider some challenging statements, but to reveal who you are in the cause of that, in the cause of being more transparent, which you and I both believe in but to being more relational in the effort to be a greater steward of the world that you live in. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you for inviting me to, to serve you in this way, to, to facilitate this. And this has been an extraordinary experience for me. And I really hope, as we talked about in a past episode, that people will be willing to go back and listen from the beginning 
because I understand there's many hours here, but if you really enjoy Josh and his show and you really want to understand the, the complexities of a human being, this is a wonderful place for you to do it. And I challenge you to have the curious curiosity and the courage to do that with yourself because when you do, you'll be surprised at not only the bias that you've carried, but how, you, how much of that bias you can let away and how much more you can be in love with yourself, not in an egoic way, but in a truthful, soulful way. And you have a deeper relationship with others and with your planet and with your environment. So from me, Dove Barron, you can find out more about me at dovebarron.com. If you want to know more about me, I'm happy to communicate with you there. I would love for you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Josh's show, Leadership in the Environment. But I would also love for you to write, take the time to write and tell him personally what you got out of this, because I think it took enormous courage. I don't think I know it took enormous courage and vulnerability and power. So thank you, Joshua. Well, Dov, I, yeah, I, this has gone in directions that I, some hoped for and some didn't know. I, and I'm kind of spent now because I didn't know where this was going to go. I mean, I, I mean, some stuff I knew, but yeah, it, it's kind of like very different than this, but somehow like the dog that chases the car and then you get the car and you're like, what now? <laughs> I don't know if I should be scared or, and, and there's going to be another moment when I hit, when I click post, and yeah. this goes up and once it's on the internet, it's never gone. And this is a unique experience for me in my life. Uh, I, I can't express the gratitude I feel to you. I hope that people listening to this subscribe to your podcast as well. And contact you. Uh, yeah, now they're going to contact you. So you get a full inbox because of me, because of this. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I'm kind of at a loss for words after talking so much. I, I have no idea. I, I must've talked for like 45 minutes, 45 minutes at a stretch. A little bit longer than that. So I'm oh, sorry if that was boring. Uh, <laughs> Not at all. And so I, I appreciate you saying that. And yeah, I'm, this is a rebirth. This is a new beginning. We'll see where it goes. I hope I don't, I hope I don't end up in jail. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you do, I, this will be the evidence in your favor. I hope that this is a new beginning in that I've really been twisted up inside about having things that were very deeply important and a practice and a teaching that is about allowing yourself to be vulnerable, about sharing openly and feeling like a boxer with both arms tied behind my back of not actually practicing it. And now I hope this gives me, I, I anticipate this will give me freedom to augment my practice. But at this particular moment, I have no idea. <laughs> see. So Dove, thank you very much. Thank you. Since recording this episode with Dove, I found some old emails from this woman that I talked about. She found my girlfriend. I don't know how, because I hadn't posted our names together. She found postings of mine, and she she would write in those postings, you know, Josh is actually, and pointed to the anonymous identity as an attraction coach. And she sent me an email, including a picture of me with my girlfriend. How she got it, I don't know, but I think she was implying she knew things about me that I hadn't told her, and she could act on them. In fact, one of her last emails to me was listing things that she knew about me and wanted me to know. And one of the things was, and you really don't know what I can do, which to this day I take very seriously. And that's my, hence my fear. Anyway, back to this in general, I appreciate you listening to my sharing these experiences, all three episodes that kept me from expressing myself and being the integrated person on the outside that I feel myself to be on the inside. I've held a lot of this stuff on the inside since the mid nineties when talking about the experience with a woman in grad school. 
in the late 90s with my experience with ecstasy, in the late 2000s, learning attraction and seduction, and mid-2010s, seeing the unaccountable power society gave a woman should she choose to act on it. But my practice is openness, allowing myself and coaching my clients to be vulnerable, sharing one's whole self, and integration, integrating all these things together. Not sharing how, say, MDMA revealed my emotional and social potential, or that I developed so much of my social skills, rebuilding myself from being an introvert my entire life to a burgeoning leader who can now gain energy from social interactions. Things that I couldn't do before and I couldn't share because these things held me and everyone I knew from my potential. I should mention that with most of my business coaching clients, after a month or two, when our relationships got closer, I would share at least the parts about the attraction and dating. Coaching relationships nearly always go from focusing on business. I mean, most clients come to me and say they want to prove something about business. And then they eventually become, usually about two months in, you know, my wife, my husband, my kids, my family, they notice this change about me. What we start talking about in work becomes a big part of their life. And at that point, I would usually say, we can include those relationships in our focus and our coaching. Usually they decline at first, but then over time they'd say, yeah, you know, let's get into that. And then I would share, well, this is a lot of the stuff that I've worked on and that I've coached with others. So it's not new that I would share the dating and attraction stuff, but it was usually on a one-on-one basis with friends or with clients that I've been working with for a while. I'll close these three episodes with these two points, that all my work on leadership, whether it's in business, personal, applied to the environment, is ultimately about helping people improve their relationships with themselves and those they care about, which may be the whole world, but certainly people that they care about, and that I find that they work best, relationships work best, when I don't hold parts of myself back, especially the most important parts, or separate parts of myself within me. And second, that as big a goal as sharing this stuff has been, I feel it's a new beginning, no longer censoring myself out of fear for how hashtag movement silencing my voice and experience might hurt me, nor holding back experiences I found the most developmental in my life. I've never done a second set of comments at the end of one of these interviews, but after recording this episode and the comments you just heard, I then shared the story with my mom after she heard me describe the stories with women, which was unusual for me to talk about, but that's the point if that's what this opened me up to. She told me the woman emailed her. So after emailing me pictures of me and my girlfriend, I don't know how she found them, writing about me on web pages without telling me, trying to make me look bad, and writing things like, you don't know what I can do, she contacted my mom. In this case, she seems to have a lot more power. If a man wrote, you don't know what I can do, or contacted a woman's mother, he could end up in jail. If a man complains about things like this, I think many people would ask, what did he do to deserve it? Again, my issue is not with any woman or women in particular, but with a culture that says, hashtag believe women, but nothing about hashtag believe men. If I said me too, I think people would say the best thing for me is to shut up and listen. Sharing these stories has opened me up to share. I've already heard back from listeners that they very much appreciated the first couple episodes with Dove. I still have no problem with the truth, but I fear unaccountable power. But this is what the experience has brought me. It has given me courage, despite the fear, to act. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.